This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you, Jonathan. Let's sit there. Wow, what a turnout. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you for coming. That's brilliant. Ladies and gentlemen, it is unbelievably almost 20 years to the day, 20 years plus six days since that immortal phrase was pronounced on Radio 3. Do you care to remind us of it, Jonathan? Uh, yes, Brian, he didn't quite get his leg over, I think. Well, I, guess, <laughs> right. I, thought we'd, I thought we'd be waiting at least half an hour. No, I think we'd like to start, start with it from the beginning. <laughs> And that kind of has gone into broadcasting history. Well, it has, and uh, it, it's actually, I mean, it's, it's won an award, ridiculously, um, <laughs> for being uh, the finest piece of radio commentary ever. If it, if it ever comes up again, please do not vote for it, okay? Because <laughs> there have been some brilliant pieces of radio commentary down the years. I mean, everything that John Arlott ever did, for a start. Um, I mean, all sorts of things. So this was a cock-up. Um, it was a very funny cock-up. It was brilliant. It was, it was hysterical. Although, actually, funnily enough, Brian Johnston didn't think so at the time. And um, he, uh, he stomped off afterwards. He really well, did. No, it, 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 and not happy. I mean, shaking his head. And it, was, it was my first year uh, in the job. And I thought this might not be a great career move, well, I was uh, going to frankly, say. because he, he was the main man. And off he went into the night. Because the two of you, you did what actors call corpse. You yeah. laughed in the middle of, of a play or whatever. It's yeah. highly unprofessional. It's impossible. Shocking behavior. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, as you probably know, it is impossible to control. Once you start to go, um, if you're just in normal life, you can just have a good laugh, can't you? A good belly laugh, and out it goes. But when you're trying to talk, Seriously, there's one again the other day with, with this ridiculous business about the bat rubber, which, which was similar. I didn't, it, I didn't think it was quite as funny, actually, but it was, but it was, it was similar, and you just feel this thing welling up. It's, it's like something that doesn't, wants to explode, and you can't. And, you, and the more you try and control it, and the, and, and the more sensible you try to sound, actually, the more absurd it ends up being. And dear old Jonathan, and the squeaking and the wheezing, which you couldn't hear. On, on the actual day, there were 20,000 people in the Oval, yes. and it was, so all we could hear was nothing, there was silence. You couldn't hear those squeaks and the wheezes and the giggles and the stupid noises, and they only came to life afterwards when I persuaded him finally to go down and listen to it to get him out of his bad mood. Well, I'm surprised you didn't release it as a CD, because if you're feeling depressed or oh, worn down by, it, by the world, by life, just play that, and you can't help when you listen to it but relapse into giggles yourself. No, it is even now. I mean, I, I, I've heard it millions of times, literally. Um, and there are sometimes, I'll be honest with you, sometimes that I'm not necessarily in the right mood for it. And, um, you know, I've heard it so many times. But other times, I, I just simply can't stop but laughing. And the nice thing about it is, although so many people have, have heard it and, and laughed at it and, and so on, it's actually a very personal memory for me because mm. I, I can still see him. I can still, you know, when I hear it, I can see him, and that's what's really nice about it. You know, everyone can enjoy it coming out of the speakers and out of the radio, um, but no one else quite has that. that well, in a way, it sealed it. your relationship with him, a relationship which you celebrate in your tribute to him. Thanks, Jonas, who is a remarkable broadcaster, Brian Johnson, we all remember with great affection, and Agger's Ashes, which was another very pleasant occasion for you when you accompanied uh, England on their successful defence of the Ashes yeah. last year. So let's talk about Brian Johnson. Well, let's talk about Test Match Special, first of all, because you, you say you heard it when your father was playing. As on, he was on the tractor in the family farm, presumably, yep. and you were a lad at the time. 
And that was your first experience of test match. Well, yes, it's, it's one of those things that just sticks with you, isn't it? I think everyone remembers where they were when they first, I don't know, fell in love with something or somebody. Mm. And, and for me, I really fell in love with cricket as a result of that. And it was all part of the summer experience, really. You know, Dad had, had a very small arable farm. And, of course, the cricket would be on when the harvest was happening. And he sort of kind of associated the, you know, the, the smell of the harvest and the, and the radio on. And he would just carry this radio from, uh, from barn to barn with the grain coming in. You know? So it's just something that I've always, always associated with it. It was, it was a beaten up old radio. And he used to laugh, although I don't think, we're talking early 60s, Brian wasn't on it very much. Mm -hmm. Brian would do two or three appearances then. But he was mainly the TV man. Yes, of course. Um, until they, they sacked him, and he was really very bitter about that. Mm. One thing I ever, that he was, I ever knew him to be bitter about was the way that television got rid of him, with no explanation or anything like that. So, so that was how I, I fell in love with it, and it's how many people do. That's, that's, I think, the most rewarding feedback that, that I, I get on, on Test Match Special. These days, of course, it's by email, whereas um, when Jonas was around, it was by letter. He would love email. He really would love it. Um, is when someone writes in saying, hey, I've found Test Match Special and, and I love it and I love cricket. And because that, that is what the programme is. It's, of course, we have to be uh, analytical as, as far as the cricket is concerned um, and unbiased and, and, and describe what's going on. But actually, I think our main job, I think my main job is to, is to sell cricket in that cricket should be associated with happy things, with smiling, mm. with enjoying yourself, with, um, with good company, with friends and, and that sort of thing. And so I think that's why Test Match Special has become the programme that it did, particularly when Brian did join it full time after he got, he got the bullet from the telly in 73, I think I might say it was, he came on to TMS full time. Mm -hmm. And that was when the programme really changed because he brought with it full time his huge character and his love of contact with people, answering letters, eating cakes, those silly word games. Yeah, it wasn't like that before. Mm. It, it wasn't. You know, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a lovely programme. But it was, you had, I think you had to be a cricket lover, really, to, to listen to the commentary in, in those days. But Brian brought a whole new audience along with him that they knew from Daniel Way and the other things that he was in. And just because he was that sort of touchy-feely, hands-on sort of a person, you know, he brought with it the, the warmth that, that he brought to well, everybody. As you say, he had that gift which great broadcasters have of making you feel that he's talking to you Personally, oh, yeah. absolutely, and that is a very rare gift. And, and, and he had it. I think I mean, so like Terry Wogan has it too. Mm -hmm. You listen to the radio, you can be one of millions, uh, but you just feel that they're talking to you. And that's um, that was one of the great things that I think Brian really taught me in a way. I mean, he didn't, he, Brian never sat me down and said, You know, this is how you do it, Aggers, and you must, you know, commentate like this. But in my first year, which was the leg over year, um, I was, is that sound right? <laughs> <Lock. Lego? Yeah. laughs> that was you, you got your leg over I've got to be a bit careful with that one. Yeah. Um, well, I, I could rephrase it, but I thought I'd bother. Um, but that, that was my first year. But I sat beside him, you see. I, I wasn't commentating that year. I was, I was uh, an expert summariser. Um, and so I could just sit and watch and listen and, and, and learn through watching him mm -hmm. and listening to him going about what he did. And I think, I mean, Barry Johnston has, has said, his son, that... that you know, he, he does hear a bit of his dad in, in the way that I do it. Mm -hmm. And it's simply through having sat there and, and, and listened from, and learnt from the best. You know, what, is, what is the art of a great commentator? Because we've been very blessed, haven't we, in mm. various sports down the years. Well, there are very, there, yeah, I mean, people are very different. Mm -hmm. I mean, people, would, people do it in different ways. And there are lots of, I think, great commentators who do it in a very different way. I mean, I tend to do it that conversational way. 
because I also like talking to people. Uh, it, it's just something that, that this, I don't know, you sort of sit there at, a, at the chair and the, the lights on and bing, you, you kind of do that. But, I mean, but I'm completely different, say, to Henry Blofeld. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's no one I know, seriously, Blowers, there's <laughs> no one else I know who brings a game alive like Henry Blofeld does. Is that true? I mean, it's, it's not often the game that the rest of us are watching, but, it's, but, but he, does, he does bring it to life. Um, and CMJ, you know, very serious. And, uh, although he's got a great sense of humour, actually, Christopher, but, but he sounds very authoritative. You know, he, he's, he's got the real sort of sense of history about cricket and tradition and so on. So, yeah, there's a balance for a start of different things. But I think, well, I think I mean, uh, to be a good commentator, You've got to know the game. You've got to be able to express it. Um, I would love to. I get a lot of, on, on Twitter these days, I get a lot of people uh, who will happily say that I've got the best job in the world, and I wouldn't argue with them. But I get a bit grumpy sometimes because they sort of, there's an assumption that anyone can do it, you know, and actually, you know, there's a bit to it, just sitting there. Well, and, it's the and art that conceals art, doesn't it, really? Yeah. You and think and it's... I, well, I can tell in five minutes whether someone could do it or not. Mm -hmm. that, really. Because I think you either can or you can't. And it is about putting words together, obviously, to match pictures mm -hmm. and, to, and to know when to be serious and when not to be serious. And that was something that John, was, I think, was, was particularly good at. You know, he, could, he could read a situation, and therefore he wouldn't be thanking Bessie Timkins for her chocolate cake yeah. when there, you know, the, the, the when situation a, didn't yeah. demand it. And he could be very serious, too. I describe in there an incident where you know, he wasn't just a, a, a giggling sort of buffoon of a mm. broadcaster. This man was a seriously good professional where there was a very complicated um, scenario where another network was joining at a time when something very bad was happening on the field. There was a Pakistani um, players going at the umpire. It was all kicking off. Someone was running on the field as well. As, and he, he was in his ear. People, again, wouldn't appreciate this often. You often aren't hearing your program in your cans. You're he was hearing the football results. And all this was going on. He was commentating on one network while this football results one was going to join him. And he had to get all of that. He had to speak for 45 seconds for them to describe what was going on before they went again. And it, you know, it was one of those scenarios that you have to deal with. And he coped with it. He's an 83-year-old man there, or he's a two-year-old man. He, he coped with it absolutely brilliantly. He got everything in, though, the, the, the scores for a start, but the seriousness of the situation. Um, and, he, and he spoke for the 45 seconds you have to do as well on the stopwatch. And that, that's, you know, that's something that you can't really learn. You know, it's, it's, but it's tell us true. about Test Match Special, because it seems to me you write about it very much as, it's quite, it's quite a sort of holy of holies, but there are some big personalities there, not all of whom get on with the other big personalities. Well, I wonder who you're thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you joined after John Arlott had gone. So oh, wonder, yes. How did Arlott Brian Johnson get Well, him. apparently, I mean, I never, I, I, it was 10 years um, that John had mm. retired. Um, I've only ever met him once, actually, very briefly. Um, but word has it, they didn't get on no. really very well. I mean, I think they, they respected each other enormously. They knew they were both very good at what they did mm -hmm. and in their own very different ways. Politically, they were like that, mm -hmm. um, particularly on South Africa, yeah. which, when they were working together, was a very divisive issue. John was... was, was much more of the belief that they should be playing still against South Africa, mm. um, even despite the Glen Eagles agreement and so on, to, to, to you know, sort of encourage them to change that way, whereas John, of course, was much more the, you know, they must be banned. So I can imagine when that was going on, there must have been some quite heated discussions yeah. about it, I'd imagine. They didn't mix, you see, and John, um, I don't think it's quite a secret, was, was a serious drinker. Mm. And I, I don't know how he broadcast 
uh, <laughs> honestly, consuming the alcohol. And again, people, people um, often say now, oh, you're all there on the booze and drinking away. I can promise you that not one single... I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't work having had a, even a mouthful of, of booze. Mm. I, love, I love my drink. I drink as much as anybody. But there's none in that commentary box. Um, but John used to come clanking in with a briefcase full of claret. I mean, he would just... <laughs> and John actually didn't think that was very good. And, and so that was... Yes, that, that was, was one, that, another thing from the... Yeah, so they, they, I don't think, got on very well. Mm. But yeah, you, you don't get on with everyone that you work with, do you? I mean, people ask me a lot about Jeffrey Boycott. I thought, I thought it was going to go there, Jeffrey. Um, <laughs> and actually, as Jeffrey revealed, um, I thought in quite humbling terms the other day, um, he, he considers me to be, to be his best friend. I mean, he does. I mean, we, we're very, we are very good friends. Congratulations. He doesn't always sound... I know. I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not, really. I don't know. <laughs> um, it was worrying. But I did, I did make him apologise twice, though. I don't know if you noticed that or not. But I did, he actually has apologised for being very rude to me. His right. wife told him. Oh, good. Well, the, well the formidable done. Rachel. You do, not, you do not want to upset Rachel Boycott. Right. And she does keep him in, 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 in shape. In some sort of order. But, you know, I mean, Jeffrey, Jeffrey and I do get on very well. He, he's... Whether he is ideal TMS, that's for other people to decide. Mm -hmm. um, he's a bit of a 50-50 as far as reaction on TMS, because TMS should be a nice place. It's on for a long time every day, and you don't want rowing and bickering and, and, and people not being very nice to each other, I don't think. Um, but Jeffrey, you know, there's a very soft, soft spot in old Jeffrey, really. I'll take your word for it. Well, no, there is. He, <laughs> You, you, yes, you, you have to dig around. I mean, if you, if you heard, I mean, he's a funny, he's, a, he's extraordinary. If you heard him recently on the radio, it's, it's, it's quite sad. And his memory is obviously going, shall we say. I mean, he, he honestly thinks he used to bat like Ian Botham. Have you heard right. him recently? <laughs> Strange the tricks the mind yeah, plays, yeah. isn't I it? I mean, he's, he's, he's losing it big time. <laughs> but I love him, and, and, and I think there probably is room for that, that style of... Mm of comment. You know, he'll never duck out of anything. Um, and he's, he is, he's just brutally honest. And unfortunately, he tends to say the same things rather a lot. Mm. With his sticks of rhubarb and his mother's pennies. And actually, <laughs> we, we play boycott bingo now, which is quite fun. And um, right. he sort of ticked them off. I set him up. And he, and he, and he took it quite well the next day. But I did set him up. And I, I informed the listeners first. Because he, he doesn't actually sit in our box. Because he works on Channel 5 as well. Mm. I mean, don't, you know, we're not the least bit upset about this, I can promise you. <laughs> but he tends to, he'll, he'll walk in, you'll hear him at the back of the box, right, get the rubbish off. <laughs> and he'll walk in, kick out the person who's here, sit down, do his half hour, and then walk out. So I, it's nice because you can set up with a listener. You can dig a bear trap for him mm. that he's totally unaware of. <laughs> and then uh, obligingly, he'll just fall straight down it within about, within about five minutes. There's still lots of jokes and larks going on in Test Match Special then. There are, but I don't, think it's, I don't think it's the same as it was from that point of view. Um, I, don't know, I think the programme has changed. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. You know, I think... See, Jonas was a great practical joker. Mm. And he actually enjoyed that side of it. And we played some awful tricks on him, mm. um, which he loved. And he was so like, like the old friendly granddad you could slightly, you know, poke a bit of fun at. And, and, and that was the role-playing then, in a way. I mean, we used to change names, tip-ex them out, put false letterheads on things, spoof letters. I mean, all this sort of stuff. And because it was Jonners, uh, you know, pe people enjoyed that. But uh, that, that doesn't happen now. And I, just, I don't think it could. For a start, I'm not sure. I mean, Blowers gets set up with a few things. But 
I don't know, I think it's just the programme's just changed with direction. New producer, Peter Baxter's gone. Mm -hmm. And Peter was very trusting. I mean, when he, he would just look at uh, me or and Graham Fowler often or David Lloyd sitting in a corner tapping out something. Oh, he'd say, oh, no, what are you two up to now? You know? And he knew that we were working on something with which to try and stitch up poor old Johnners. But he let us do it. You know, he, he trusted us. And that's where Peter was such a skillful producer in that he would give the impression that he was just pottering around at the back mm. of the commentary box doing the rotor or something and, and actually, you know, letting us get on with it. But of course he was, he was listening. But there is only so much a producer can do because you, you are, as, as the broadcaster, you are actually producing the programme yourself as well. You, you were not given instructions or notes or mm. any guidance at all as to how to do it. You get on there and you don't know what you're going to talk about, actually. I, often when it's raining. Um, <laughs> honestly, you just sit down and... and Natural way. It just comes out, yeah, and it's, a lot of it's rubbish, I suspect, but it's, it, it, it's, the meter keeps ticking, and that's all that you have to keep doing. I mean, will we ever have, have you ever had a, a, a regular female member of Test Match Special? Well, yes, we, uh, and actually that, that was an interesting one, and she was very popular, and I was working, as is often the case when we go away on tour, um, I often get picked up by the local um, radio stations as well. So, um, and in the Caribbean, it's quite interesting because there, there are, you, you often you, you have sort of an area one, plus the local island mm. ones, which often throws things like me and CMJ into competition on the on the islands. You know, it's great fun. Um, and I was working uh, in Trinidad on this particular tour, um, and it was the abandoned Jamaica match, and they shifted then to have two test matches back to back in Trinidad. And I was working with this, this young lady called Donna Simmons, who. I thought it was great, actually. Um, she had a nice sense of humour, she had a lovely voice. She obviously knew enough about cricket that you could get away with on the radio. By that I mean, you know, she obviously never played it to a level and therefore you, you could never commentate on television having not played it mm. now. Uh, I think you could probably 20 years ago, but not now because there's simply so much, um, you know, the, the replays and that are, are so graphic. You really have to explain what's going on. Uh, and she was lovely, you know, and she had broken the Caribbean um, market, if you like, which is difficult. I mean, they're, they're much more, I think, took much more harder work, I think, mm. to convince the, the cricket-loving men of the Caribbean that they, they could be, have a woman talking to them about cricket. And Peter and I were talking about what we're going to do to make the second test of these two different. Same ground, same players, and everything else. And I said, well, this could be the moment. Mm -hmm. um, I'm working with Donna. Um, Vic Marks was also summarising, and so he was actually working with her. As it, as it, as it, and, I, and I ran it past him. He said, yeah, she's great. And there had been a bit written, you know, stuffy old TMS. Yeah. Um, you know, they'll never have a woman on there, that sort of thing. And actually, it just seemed the right time and the right person to do it. So Donna came on, and she was brilliant. She was lovely. Um, she did make a mistake, I think, in going to telly after that, but that's, that's easily made. And um, as I said, you, you, you can get away with stuff on, on radio. But she had a lovely voice. Uh, she's great fun to work with, very descriptive. Um, and... There we go. We, we, we've, we've had a woman do it. She doesn't do it anymore. She doesn't do it in the Caribbean anymore. She's a very successful barrister now. Right. And, uh, <laughs> she saw the light. Yeah, um, that's quite. And the money, probably. Um, but she, um, so, so that's, why, that's why Donna isn't with us now. So it's still, it's still pretty blokish. Oh, it is. still kind of... It is. But Alison Mitchell um, is, 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 is sort of on the, the fringe of mm. TMS. And she reports. So she's a very good reporter. I thought if you can cover a death brilliantly, she, she covered Bob Wilmer's yeah. sad demise brilliantly. Um, and she knows her cricket, she's very well connected, she plays women's cricket, she knows all the women very well. Um, and so she's there, you know, if, if ever any woman came along, uh, 
she, they certainly wouldn't be blocked because she's a woman. You know, mm. we, we, we welcome women very much. Because did you think the media was going to be your career during your time with Leicestershire and then no. in your test career as well? Did you have any inkling that Not this Not really. I remember, it's funny, I, I remember once we were on, on tour in India and I went on the, it was, a, it was David Gower's tour. Actually, it was a brilliant tour because uh, we lost, well, it's brilliant, apart from Indira Gandhi being assassinated. <laughs> uh, Never mind. <laughs> the British High that. Commissioner in Bombay <laughs> being assassinated before a ball was bowled. Um, apart from that, it was a brilliant tour because we lost the first test match. Um, someone called Swaroop Krishnan got about 16 wickets. He was the umpire. And um, <laughs> remember him? The, um, so we picked up from that mm -hmm. and we won in Delhi. And I then went to Calcutta. I flew in as a replacement for Paul Allard. And um, I hardly bowled a ball. I mean, I was just, you know, making up numbers, really. And I do remember um, talking to some of the press boys. And much as people say to me now, what an easy job you've got. I think we were bored somewhere uh, in, in Madras, I think, during a test. And I said, you've got an easy job. And I remember them saying, two or three of them saying, go on then, um, you, you write the report on tomorrow's play. You won't be playing. <laughs> write a report, write 600 words when you get back. And um, let's have a look at it. And actually, I remember which one it was. It was the final test of that series. It was when Muhammad Azharuddin got his third hundred. He got his first three tests. Um, he, he got a hundred in each match. And so I did. I went back to my room. I was sharing with Phil Edmonds, which is an experience. <laughs> and um, I, I, I wrote this on a bit of hotel paper and handed it in. And they marked it. You know, and they considered it was all right. But that was probably all that it was. And that was really the first inkling that I had that I might do it. But it, it, was, it was radio, really, that got me into media. Mm in that um, a good friend of mine called John Rawling, who people would probably know is a brilliant athletics commentator. I mean, superb. Um, he does boxing now on, on ITV. But um, he was at Radio Leicester. And in those days, of course, you had to get work outside the playing season. And I did all sorts of things. I drove a lorry one year. I worked in a window factory, which was pretty disastrous. Um, awful. I, don't know, I pity the people who took those. <laughs> Have those windows in there. Well, they won't, be, they, won't, they won't be in their houses now. I'm convinced of that. They're looking for the 10-year NHBC <laughs> warranty would have seen to that, I think. But, um, but and this, this fellow came to me and said, listen, I think, I think you ought to give radio a go. You've got a nice voice. Um, you won't get paid anything, uh, which I wasn't. And that's how I started up, mm. doing the early morning sports reports on Radio Leicester. I met my wife there. Um, the story of that is an interesting one. That's in there. Um, it's kind of run that course ever since, uh, our relationship. Uh, it was a somewhat feisty. Anyway, um, and that was how I got into radio. And, and, and the great thing about it was that I knew, having done a winter of it, that there was life outside cricket, and there was something that I really enjoyed. And I loved it. I, lo I loved the journalists on it. You know, they're very similar. Um, and I just loved talking to people through, through a microphone. So I knew I got 100 wickets next time. Mm. I, I just relaxed and knew that there was a life outside. Because the BBC, I mean, presumably it's because it now demands expertise. You can't have people like Brian Johnson who played the game but didn't play it no. professionally, as I understand. I think you can. I think you can as a commentator, commentator still. I hope so. You think so? Yeah, you well, don't I hope have you to can. Have played no, it at no. A well, you have level. to. You have to have played it at, at a level. I mean, John is, was what Eton seconds, uh, <laughs> and he just got into that, I think. But he played a lot of club cricket and uh, and so on. But you see Simon Mann, who joins us now, and I think does a really good job. He's a club cricketer. Um, he, he knows what it's like to be out there. He knows what it's like to have an argument with an umpire. or you know, he, he can read a situation, which is what you have to do. But, no, you, haven't got to, you, you do not have to have played test cricket. Well, I'm the only one. I'm the only radio commentator to have played test cricket uh, in the world. 
you said thinking about it, but I, yeah, I am. I mean, it, it's quite, it is rare. Yeah. So you still want broadcasters, I think, to do a radio job. It'd be very sad if it was blocked out to people who, who had not it can played that. Quite, I mean, you, I was fascinated by the Stuart Broad, Geoffrey Boycott incident. Oh, yes. Uh, tell us about that, because it seems to me that that's one of the dangers of having, I mean, not just past, he's the actual present test cricketers, yep. in the commentary box with yeah. you. Well, it was. This, this was actually in Perth on this last tour. Yeah. And Stuart, very sadly, had, had injured himself and was knocked out of the series. Um, and we all thought we were going to wave him off, and that was it at Adelaide, and he wouldn't come. But in fact, as it turned out, his mother and his stepfather were coming to Perth, and he wanted to stay on and see them. And he wrote, actually, it was, it was I think, the headline in the Daily Mail, uh, I want to stay and I want to work on Test Match Special. Mm. I thought, well, OK, that'd be great. And I've known Stuart since he was that high. Um, he's, a, he's a really, really nice lad. Uh, yeah, the whole family are fantastic. Been through a lot recently. Um, and I thought, yeah, OK, that's good. But um, warning lights did flash. Yeah. Because, of course, um, Andy Flower, the England coach, was, was not so keen because he, and I must admit, I also saw the possibility of what was going to happen, mm -hmm. which was that England played very badly in that game. They got beaten. And if you hear any interview these days, they drive me mad. It's all about, you know, he's a quality player or... You know, bowl in the right areas, and it, it, it's, it's, it's a mantra that you get churned out these days. It's, it's disappointing, and it's, it's, a, it's a pain interviewing players, unfortunately. You get them away, and they're lovely, they're terrific, but they're all very coached in what mm. to say. And, of course, given the situation of England being thrashed in this test match and playing badly, poor Stuart coming on at the end and saying, well, you know, if they bowled in the right areas or if they, you know, the, the quality players, they'll bounce back with Jeffrey Boycott alongside right. him, um, I think was an interesting experience for Stuart, <laughs> who, uh, who got roasted by Jeffrey yes. on the air. Mm. And I was with him, and I, it was very uncomfortable. Because I felt sorry for Stuart. And actually, he, he, in, you know, I think in everyone's hindsight, probably he, he shouldn't have been on. Mm. But he wanted to come on. He wanted to do it. Um, and there you go. And, and, and in some ways, it's, it's good that Stuart has seen what our job is, you know, in that we're not... Uh, you know, we do try and see the, the, the nice things of, of cricket. We don't just sit there and slag people off all the time. Uh, but when you've got to be honest and make a brutal assessment of what has gone wrong in this test match, you, you've, you've got to front up and you've got to say it. Because you've never felt... Because I was very struck by the fact that as BBC's cricket correspondent, you are there to provide balance. Hmm. Um, but you say in your book that thanks to England's performances, or some of them in Australia, you, felt you woke up elated and exhilarated. Oh, yes. You were really pleased. It's interesting. Isn't I'm there a, a tension in this, then, between you as a fan yes, and as a there correspondent? Can be. In the, uh, it, and it's a really interesting point that you make. I've just written an article on the train up here, actually, um, about that very thing. You know, in that I interviewed Andy Flower on Saturday at Edgebaston. And uh, after I'd finished, I just said, you know, well done. Now. You know, it, it is just, this is off, off air. Yeah, I just feel really proud, you know, of what, of what English cricket has done. And he seemed surprised. He said, really? I said, yes, I, I mean, I really am proud. He said, I didn't think that possibly people in the press felt. I said, of course we do. You know, we've been, I've been through it for 20 years watching them. And, yeah, the, the, the fan bit is interesting. The, the, the one thing I really resent, if someone ever wants to get blocked on Twitter, it is to say that I'm not impartial. And I do get some of that. I've had it this summer from, from Indian supporters and stuff, and I, was, I, I will not have that. You know, I'm someone who fairly early in my career said the England captain should resign for ball tampering. Um, I felt very strongly about that at the time. Um, and I still would in that situation. Mike Allerton um, was the fellow in question. Um, 
and so I, I deal absolutely in terms of being fair. However, I, I love England winning. Um, when they were losing, part of my job was to try and put the finger on why they were losing. Um, and so that's, that's how I try and walk that, that, that I mean, tightrope. Are you concerned about, say, you're, you're people not speaking to you if you speak out against them? Are you worried about losing your access to players or no, management? No, because that, that Atherton thing, um, I mean, that was, that was very nasty for some months. In fact, well, he and I get on fine now. Mm. We, we, we've, just never, we've just never talked about that. That was, what, 1995? We've, we've, we've never talked about that incident because the scars of it are still there in the press box mm -hmm. and they're still with, it, with all of us. But no, um, I've had players not talk to me. Um, in fact, Graham Swan the other day, there was an incident at Lord's in which Owen Morgan um, was caught. He, he played a pull shot, he went up in the air. I was commentating, so I was 100 yards away and I was 150 feet off the ground. And this fielder came in and took a brilliant catch. I could see it, uh, you know, way, way down there. He took it right in front of the umpire, Billy Bowden. He took it right in front of Owen Morgan, who stood there and didn't walk. Because, of course, these days, if you don't walk, the umpire goes and confers. You know damn well the umpire's going to refer it up to the third umpire. And you know almost, almost 100%. The third umpire will, you know, the picture's a bit, you can't entirely tell, they give it not out. And I put on Twitter that um, I was just sad that, that Morgan didn't walk for that. You know, it, it, it's, it was... It was cynical, frankly. Mm -hmm. I didn't use the word cynical, but I just said it was that. I think Graham Swan had a, a, quite a go at me the next day. He said, you shouldn't be writing stuff like that. And I said, really? I said, okay, Swanny. I said, so that's Ricky Ponting batting, you're bowling. Um, and it's Owen Morgan taking the catch. And I put on Twitter, really sad to see Ricky Ponting not walking for that. What are you going to say? Mm -hmm. He said, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I, take, I take your point. And, and off he went. But initially, it was hostile. But I think as long as, long as you, if you say something that is you know, good judgment, even if it's criticism. You know, you have, you have to criticise. When, when, I mean, the, the whole Peterson stuff, um, yeah, that's been quite difficult because you have to make an honest assessment on Peterson's role within the team, which clearly in the World Cup was an issue. Um, but you have to do that in a way in which is, is kindly to him, or at least sympathetic to him. Mm -hmm. But because it's not right just to, to, to slag somebody off. But it's based on what you can see and based on what you're told around the team. But actually, there was an issue during the World Cup. He wasn't proud of the team. And actually, they were, frankly, they were, they were pleased that he went home. So does KP listen to those sort of things? Do they read them? They all say they don't, um, but they do. Mm. But you just hope that part of their media training is that they must accept the rough with the smooth. And if someone like me is making a judgment call, then it's that's based on my experience and just, I might be wrong. I might, and and um, you, know, you are sometimes on, on assessing players. Now your book brings it home to me, of course, that not only are the players thousands of miles from home during the winter, but of course people like yourself are also away from your nearest and dearest as well. Does that yeah. cause strains oh, yeah. in a relationship when you're yeah. away, most, at that time of year? Most people doing my jobs uh, are on second marriages at least. Mm -hmm. Um, I am, uh, and I wouldn't say that the job was entirely to, to blame for that, but it certainly played a part. Um, yeah, you're away a huge amount. It, it has changed a bit. There's, there's much more sympathy shown, I think, by uh, people in you know, your bosses, uh, editors, um, and that sort of thing, about the time that you do spend away. And gradually, you know, there is more time. And I'm not going to India to do the one day as in 
uh, in the autumn. They're there for five one day. that are utterly meaningless. Um, but because, I mean, I was away five months last week. Mm. So I'm going to have an autumn at home. I'm going to have a proper Christmas, which I have not had, I don't think, in 20 years. <laughs> yes, right. Proper one. I mean, not, no, they also, you're going to have Christmas at home and you land at about 10 o'clock on Christmas Eve mm. at Birmingham Airport or something, you know. Um, that's not a proper Christmas. So it, it, it does cause tensions. Um, my, my wife is, is brilliant. She's a journalist. Uh, she knew what she was getting into when we, when we got together. Um, she makes a real effort to come out. Um, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, West Indies. She hasn't, <laughs> she hasn't yet. Well, maybe. It's not such a sacrifice. Well, I was going to say, she hasn't yet ventured into India, Pakistan, or Bangladesh. But I'm, I'm sure I'll, I'll persuade her. Um, but, um, but you have to. You know, you have to, you have, you have to do it. And, and it is good that, that times are changing. And it's changed the players, mm. too. In that when I played for England, you had to pay for your, your family to come out for a start. Um, and it, it, obviously not cheap, they're not, not paid nearly as well as they are today. And these days they're given business class flights. Uh, the wives, the entourage, mm. they come out and they play much better when the wives are there. I don't care what people say. And there's always the usual stuff written in the papers. Uh, oh, the wives are here, so the wheels are off. Mm. No. Um, in, in my experience of touring with the players, they play better when their wives and family are there. And then why wouldn't you? I mean, what's your verdict on that, Ashley Stewart? It seems to me that Australia were sort of weakened from the outset by yep. internal dissent and mm. uh, doubts about Pontaine's yeah. judgment. Yeah, it was amazing. It was, it was unlike any tour that I've been on. And it was always my ambition, of course, to go and watch England win. And I just really felt this time they were going to do it. Um, but from the moment we got there, it was quite interesting. We were over in Perth, which is like a million miles away from, mm. from the rest of it. It's its own little little world over there, really. And it was all kicking off on the East Coast, where the players were, they were losing to Sri Lanka. Uh, There's a question about so Ponting's future. All these things were going on. Um, and so when we did sort of make our way around in an easterly direction, when they got to Hobart and they put out this massive squad of, I think it was 17 players, for the first test, which is more than England had on the tour, you think, this is balmy. What's going on? It was just so un-Australian. Mm. And... It was an Australian all the way through. Little funny things. I had a, um, someone who I know very well. She, she came to me from an Australian board about three days before the first test match. And she said, uh, she said, Aggie, she said, you know, um, you know some singers, don't you? I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, I've seen, you know, uh, Lily Allen, uh, Leslie Garrett, uh, these people I know because you've interviewed them. I said, well, yeah. I said, why? Well, she said, well, we haven't got anyone to sing the, the national anthem. Uh, at the Gabba on, on Friday. Do you think any of them would want to come over? I said, what? <laughs> you know, this is bonkers. And again, it's, it's just so un-Australian. Mm. And in fact, they got some Sheila out from some... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they sang it in the end. But, John uh, Sutherland. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but it was odd, you know? And, you th and again, you think, how? Oh. But, uh, however, having said all of that, um, England very nearly lost that first test mm. match. I mean, to save that match was unbelievable. I mean, 99 teams out of 100 would have lost that first test match from, the, from where they were on the third day. And had they lost that game, who, who knows where it might yeah. have gone. But, but they didn't. Uh, and they, I remember going back to my room, and I've written about it in there, I came back to my room that night because it was so unfair. You know, the, the whole review system business, which I don't like anyway, had, had, had really conspired against England in that match. There were things that hadn't happened, and I knew they were better than that. Mm -hmm. And all the sneering had started, and I walked into the ABC box. I, I was like, oh, TMS, ABC, TMS, ABC. Um, and as I opened the door, 
I could just hear one of them off air, but talking to a mate saying, oh, geez, the, wheel, the wheels are off already, uh, Bruce. <laughs> and uh, sort of snigger, ha oh, oh, you know, it's only taken three days. I thought, no, this is, this is just not right. And so, again, when they, when they saved that match, yeah. I, I was euphoric. I think it's, it, it, is, it is certainly the most partisan I've ever been mm. on a tour because to have been there as often as I have um, and to have just taken that all the time. I, mean, I used to creep in that ABC box, you know, at about four foot six, <laughs> you know, and apologize to everybody. I'm oh, sorry we're crap again. <laughs> uh, but, you know, ho hum, you know, there's another five mil. And that was what it used to be like at the end of the tour, you know. Well, re revenge is a, a dish best eaten cold, as they say. Indeed. And um, I didn't cheer up too much. <laughs> no. Um, no, I, I tell no you, my, my, my final line, and, and they only took it fairly well, was my last, <laughs> was in the ABC box when they were giving a prize out to the listener who came up with the same um, team between the two teams. What do they call it? It's sort of, you know, joined together team. What do they call it? We fantasy. picked the 11. Yeah, yeah fantasy, fantasy team 11. out of the two teams. That'll do nice. 11. And I went through it and selected all Englishmen apart from the number five, who had actually scored, I think, 35 for the, for the Australian women against, <laughs> against England's ladies in Perth. So they took that fairly badly. And I asked, I asked what the prize was. And I said, oh, mate, it's, a, it's, a, it's an autographed bat of the Australian team. And I said, don't worry. It said, you can sand it off. In, it'll, cost you, it'll cost you 10 cents for the nearest DIY store to sand it off, and you've got a perfectly good bat. And they didn't, um, they didn't take that very well. But yeah. I, thought, I, thought, I, thought, I thought fair do after all, all those well, six exactly. tours. What you'd had to put up with. Yeah, well, I thought uh, it was fair enough. It's early, it's early right and proper. So yeah. why, how, how has this transformation taken place that England has become, from a national joke, are now champions yeah. of the world? I know. It is true. I mean, if you think of all those phone-ins we used to do, I mean, there were, there were biannual events in mm. the 90s. What's wrong with English cricket? There'd be one at the end of the summer and there'd be one at the end of the winter tour. You know, and I'd be wheeled into Five Live and, you know, those phone-ins. We have come a, a, a hugely long way. There's been a massive investment, and you know I am very um, not strong, but I, I, I do feel very strongly that 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 the cricket isn't on terrestrial television. Very strongly about that. Not BBC. I don't, I don't care where it's shown, but it should be on terrestrial television. However, the fact is that the Sky Money, 300 million, whatever you think of it, has been spent in some areas that I don't think it could have been spent were it not on Sky. So, this, again, it's quite an interesting argument in that um, I'm, I'm sort of putting it in my own sort of order now in that, in that I think it's short-termism to an extent and that I think that the penalty, the price for not having it on terrestrial television will come back to bite us. Yeah. Uh, however, at the moment, that money makes the England team easily the most resourced in the world. Their preparation, the backroom staff that Jeffrey always goes on about, but they are they are invaluable. They do an incredible job. They work they work those players in ways that no one else is, and that includes Australia. Yeah, we, we wipe the floor with them in terms of preparation. The academy in Loughborough is is astonishing. It has to be seen to be behold. Um, so that's why that's why they've improved because there's been a, a huge amount of money that had to be spent. I mean, it did have to come from somewhere, and I, I don't know what else it could have come from. Uh, so that, that's, it's, it's quite an interesting debate, that television one. Um, I, would, I would love it. I think the ideal scenario was where it was, which was it was on terrestrial, it was also on sky, and they could do their own thing, and it was on all the time terrestrially as well. But, of course, they upped the ante. They, yeah. they threw the money to have it exclusively. 
I don't know. Hands up. How, how many have got Sky here, actually? There you go, oh, see? Oh, gosh. Well, it's half, I'd say. Is it just, just under half? Yeah, something like that. It's under half. But it's, if I'd done that five years ago, it would have been half of that number. Mm, good. And we've got the lights up, anyway, so that's a very apposite time to ask for some questions from our audience. So a couple of hands up here. So here comes a microphone lady, I hope. Here we are. Hands up. Keep your hand up, please, madam. In the front row there, I think. Oh. It's not switched on. That's a disaster. <laughs> It's like Henry Blofeld at the, at the, at the desk. <laughs> Microphone, how are we doing? Hello. There you go. Perfect. Nice, <laughs> to, nice to have you here. Um, you've mentioned Twitter a few times. Yes. And many of us, I'm sure, follow you on Twitter. Some of us even follow Bracken, your dog. Ah. And uh, I was going to ask a really complicated question about the current series. However, Bracken suggests I ask about the connection between... Elvis Presley and Michael Holding's birthday party? <laughs> Does he? <laughs> um, well, the funny thing is that my dog is on Twitter, um, and I think uh, he has about 3,000 followers now, which is completely ridiculous. Um, and it actually isn't me. I, I, do, I do know the person who it is. Um, he might not be a million miles from this room. Um, and I think he does it brilliantly. It's a bit of a laugh. Um, but what I like about, about Twitter um, is that you can let people into your, your life a little bit. Uh, I don't mind that, as long as people interact with it. My wife does it. Um, she's a bit harsh on me, I think, often, <laughs> often much, of the, much of the time. Um, but the connection with Elvis, did you say? Yeah. And Michael Holdings' birthday party. And Michael, no, 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 it was um, Michael Holdings. It was um, Tony Cozier's birthday party. And I went dressed as, um, as Elvis. And... Um, <laughs> It was, it was a mistake, and there were some, un <laughs> there were some unfortunate photographs um, which I couldn't, I couldn't stop no. um, appearing on Twitter. Well, never mind. No, I saw another hand up a little further back, yes? Hello. Hello. I've been asked to tell you that you were heard loud and clear last week on a cable car in Switzerland. Really? Yes. <laughs> That's probably a first. <laughs> well, it happened. <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? So, how did it, so that, that can't have been on Radio 4 Longwave. Well, that's what she was getting anyway. It is amazing. I mean, I, I, I get, we are heard in the most bizarre places. In fact, sometimes it's quite fun. In fact, we have done it for a while, uh, saying, where are you listening now? And I think the best we had was one of these weather stations on the South Pole, mm -hmm. where there were people there huddling in a tent. Um, and they were listening to Test Match Special, which is incredible. We get a lot of people in aeroplanes now, because a lot of, I think, American airlines have means of listening to the radio, or, or at least, no, you go on the Wi-Fi and you can, you can tune your phone into these things. So I think it's brilliant. I, I really do. Um, I know a lot of, lot of the serving soldiers listen to Test Match Special. Um, uh, there's that famous case, um, I'm trying to search for his name now, listen here, the guy who was the, the um, held hostage um, in, in Iraq for some years. Um, and he, um, he, he used to listen on the shortwave radio to Test Match Special. I mean, it is, it's, it's kind of, it does, it does uh, they're a memory of home, I suppose, isn't it? I hope. Secondly, congratulations on your um, professionalism during the power cut last week. Ah, yes, that was interesting. <laughs> I felt sorry for the Indian lady who came along. As soon as she said hello, the lot went out. It was a bit of, <laughs> a, bit of a teething problem for Edgebaston, I think. But we actually broadcast in three different rooms in about 15 minutes. It was actually it was the engineers that did it. I mean, they are brilliant. They, how they lashed that up uh, to keep us on the air. 
I don't know. It tends to happen more overseas than at home. I don't think it'll happen at Edgebaston again. They'll test it next time. Now, I'd like to pass it along to the gentleman here. Thank you. Jonathan, looking, looking back at these first three tests, do you think now there was a certain almost inevitability about the result that we've, that we've had um, in terms of, you know, India were the number one side, and clearly yeah. now England is. And as the second part of that, how long do you think we might maintain our position as the number one test team? Just, you know, compared, let's say, to the Australians. Sure. Well, actually, with their best they're both side. really good questions. The second one I'll deal with first. It might only be a few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and might not be our fault because South Africa are playing. The way the, way this system works, it, it, it is a bit complicated. Um, and South Africa have got a couple of, they've got New Zealand and they've got Sri Lanka, I think I'm right in saying, um, which they will win. They're second. They may well go ahead of us if we build another ball. I mean, it, apart from after, after next week. So, you know, I, I don't really mind about that first or second. Or, yeah, that, that's not the issue. The fact is that they set their sights on getting there and, and they've got there and it just illustrates the improvements that, that's been made. India, I just think, have been a disgrace. Um, if you look at them in the field, and, and, and someone who does my job, that's actually where you tend to look first. You look at body language, you look at, look at the way that a team is, is operating. And it's like watching a team from the 70s in terms of their fielding. There's, it's, there's no energy. Um, there seems to be no motivation, which is the saddest thing. You know, they, were, they were number one. You, you, should, you should derive a lot of motivation from that. And I know England will. You, know, that, that's, you are the team everyone else wants to beat. You should be, you know, you should be really proud of, of how you've got there and, and the, the standards that you set. I don't see any of that in the Indian side. Um, I see a hierarchy of, of them and us. I see Sachin Tendulkar, who's never actually played much of a part in the field. He, now he just seems to choose the quietest place in the outfield, just stands in it. You've got Lakshman, who's got his hands in his pockets all the time at slip, and Dravid stands beside him and is dropping everything. And you've got people like Kumar and Srisanth, these, these young bowlers, who are bowling their boots off, largely because that lot have been failing, fielding at extra cover and cover point, running around all over the place. I mean, it's... It, I'm fascinated by what Duncan Fletcher was making of it because, again, he's someone I've known a long, long time. I used to play club cricket with Duncan. Uh, he, was, he was a wonderful captain. I've got a huge amount of time for him. He's much more charismatic than the Duncan Fletcher that you've seen on television. There's a lot more to Duncan than that. Um, and what he is making of what he can see out there and what he can do about it, that's the interesting thing. I just don't know. These guys, you know, if you look at um, Gautam Gumbia, for instance, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a decent player. He's just picked up £1.5 million pounds, uh, for thrashing around in the IPL for a few weeks. So is he really going to want to come here and have the blood and guts and the real test of test cricket away from home for weeks? You tell me. It, it looks to me as if they don't, as if they haven't got that hunger. And that's an issue that, that their board has to look at. But they've squeezed an Asia Cup in. The, the, the problem for Indian cricket, if, they, if it is a problem, is that they can attract such vast sums of money through television rights. They've got three or four networks who all want it. They're all in a bidding war. They just stick another tournament on and they make another you know, $500 million um, out of it. And so you know, the, the players are going to have to be more professional than they are. If they're going to play this amount of cricket and on that side of it, raking these huge amounts of money, they've got to pay Test Cricket the respect that it deserves because they... I'm not going to say they haven't done that in this series, but they certainly have not played anything like the level in which they are capable of doing, and that, I think, is part of the issue. Thank you. Now, how about some questions over here? Oh, millions. Right, hand at the end of the row there. Um, 
can say England now, having won the 2020 World Cup and being really the best test team in the world, what will they have to change to become world champions in 2015? For the World Cup, you mean? Yeah, yeah that's a really good question. Um, for some reason, our 50 overs game has been incredibly erratic. We seem to veer from saying, right, we're going to pick our best players, and they are probably our test players, and we're going to make the best out of them, and they lose. So we then go the other way. We're going to get right some really good you know, people who bowl bat and, and all-rounders and fill our sides with that, and then you look at it and you think, hang on a minute, you look at the actual names there. They're not the best players in the country, and, and they lose. And we've been rocking to and from that. Um, I don't know is the answer to that, because I think we're still miles away. I, I think that, unfortunately for, for English one-day cricket, we play in a very reserved manner. There's something about, I think, the way that English play cricket generally. You know, you look at the way that the Sri Lankans broke the mould in the, in the 1990s. Look at the way that the Indians go out and play one-day cricket. The Australians, it's aggressive, it's hostile. We, we don't play our one-day cricket like that. And I don't know why. We've, we've somehow got to throw off these, these shackles and go out there and play. I mean, I've got a, I mean, Jonathan Trott is someone who I admire hugely for the way that he plays. But he's just not the right person to be batting at number three in a one-day international. No other team in the world have Jonathan Trott batting at number three in a one-day international just because of the, the way that he plays. They'd have someone out there smacking it about. Um, and that's just not old Trotty's style, you know. But he's, he's been successful right? because the rest of the batting has failed around him. He's played at his own own way. And it's a one-day cricket now. Test cricket has been brilliant. He's scored scores in Australia largely because of the failures that were happening around him. So he wasn't actually pressed to score quickly. You, you look at him there and think, is that, is that really the right person to be batting there? Um, whenever he goes out, he scores runs. Um, so that's... I, I, I don't see us... Until we reinvent the way that we play one-day cricket, in terms of attitude as much as anything, I, I, think, I think we're struggling up to there. But Andy Flowers made it his, at his target now. Anyway, so Thank you. That's well questions from the yes, gentleman there, up there. I've been a member at Yorkshire for some years, and recently, about four months ago, I received an application form for next summer's test series against South Africa, ah. which is obviously a good distance away. I also had communications from Durham wanting me to buy tickets for the Ashes series in two years' time. What's your opinion on the, the bidding process that seems to be leading towards counties bankrupting themselves? Well, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it has changed in the last year when it really was very serious. Um, I'm not sure about the, the way the whole thing works anyway, how transparent it is in that Lords bid twice the amount that Cardiff did for the West Indies test match that went to Cardiff and actually has gone back to Lords now. But in pure financial terms, Lords bid twice the amount that, that Cardiff did, and yet Cardiff got the test. So I don't understand how, how, how that works either. But there's not the commitment now that they're going to have to put up. I mean, Cardiff are virtually bust um, by trying to get by, by the, the test match this, this year. I, mean, I, I feel sorry for Durham, actually, um, because it's a, it's, a it's a terrific county. Um, and I just felt that you know, they've had the West Indies, they've had Zimbabwe, uh, they've had Bangladesh. Um, why didn't they get the first test match against Australia? And then Cardiff got it in its first year. I'm not, I'm not bitter or anything about Cardiff, but it has to be a level playing field, in, in my view. I think that Lords should entertain each touring team. I think if, you're, if you ask any cricketer out there around the world where they want to play cricket, they want to come and play at Lords. And uh, I just think that they stage it so well, they do it so well. I actually would rather have six international grounds 
bias That's towards bias. London. Well, it's just it's the home of cricket. It's it's what? Sorry. Well, yes, and, and well, I was going to come to this, and, and that you see again is not a level playing field. They manage to secure a, a staging deal that guarantees them. I think it's for 20 years, and that was done before this last thing was done. So it's it's not a level playing field at all. I'd rather have six grounds that were maintained, owned by the ECB, that were top class venues. Uh, that stage international cricket on our behalf. I think that would just be the right way of doing it. Um, but I, I haven't yet seen the list of who's got tests next summer, I don't think. So if you told me that Headingley's got one, have they? Have they? Okay, that's good. That's good. Now, final question. Yes, the hand up here. Jonathan, you expressed a view once or twice about the review system. Oh, only um, once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested to hear your views um, expressed. Yeah, well, it's, again, it's a funny, it's a very interesting debate, that, because just when I'm getting angry about it, something happens, you think, well, you know, it's got it right that time. What I feel about the review system is that we're trying to do it probably 10 years too soon. And in 10 years' time, when the technology is good enough that it works, and it works all the time, and you know it's right, then I think, it's, it's, I think that's okay. However, I do have an issue with, with players as it were, disputing umpires' decisions. I do have an issue with that. I don't think it's any coincidence at all that there's been more disciplinary action taken in county cricket this year than any other. And I was talking to Paul Nixon about this, who's, been, who's finally retired, but he, he's played a long time, Paul. And, and it was him who volunteered, it wasn't me. He said that the use of technology is a bad example. We'll see it in club cricket, we'll see it in schools cricket. You'll see batsmen arguing an umpire's decision, which has always been the cornerstone of cricket. You, you, you accept the rough with the smooth. You, the umpire's decision is final, all of those things. you know. So that's, what, that's one of the big things I don't like about it. But also, uh, hotspot doesn't work all the time, as, as we know. Uh, Snicko takes far too long to line up. It's, it's manageable. People, people are very suspicious sometimes of, um, of, of, of Snicko because it, it is behind the scenes. It does take operators to move these things about. Um, it takes too long to, to use. Hawkeye, I've had some really interesting lectures with Paul Hawkins, who, who's invented that system. And he's convinced me of a couple that when I was commentating at the time, I'd say, nah, that's not that. But there's still one that sticks out to me, which is, which is Tendulkar uh, in the World Cup semi-final in, in Mahali against Pakistan. And Ian Gould, who's a fine umpire, gave what I thought was a really brave and accurate decision, giving Tendulkar out in a World Cup semi-final against Pakistan in India. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, that's a ghastly one, isn't it? And he, and he gave him out, and he was right to do so. And on came, came the tracking thing. It wasn't Hawkeye, it was another one. And it had it shooting off down the leg side, as we know. I mean, it was... So I, I'm... When we know the technology is going to work, when it's not going to undermine the umpire's authority, I'm sure I'll be persuaded that it's probably the right way to go because it, it does... As a commentator, the worst thing you can have is when you're still... You know, we sort of... You, you commentate for a moment. I mean, you, you'll find that when I commentate on a wicket, it's, it's about 40 seconds. That's the kind of highlight that you're commentating for and you finish with a score, and that's kind of the professional way of doing it. There's chopped out, and it goes into archives and that sort of thing. And there's nothing worse when you've done it, blah, 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 so there, 150 for three, and you see the first replay, and you see a huge nick into the pad of the bloke shouldn't have been given out. That is also ghastly. So we need to get rid of that as well. So I, for now, what I would like to see is I'd like to have technology up to the point of impact of the pad, I don't want to see predictive stuff. I don't necessarily believe it, and the Indians don't. Up to that, so you can see inside enter the pad or not, uh, for either out for courts or not out for leg before wickets. 
And if it does help court behinds with hot spots and stuff, well, all right. But certainly for LBs, I'd like it to, to be up to the point of impact and then stopped. And I think people, I think people would, would be happier with that. Well, here, sadly, I have to declare, uh, after a fabulous innings, I'm sure you'll agree, Jonathan will be at the crease next door, signing copies of his books. That's out that door, turn left and left, or that door, if you prefer, and right and right. Well, Aggers, we wish you many more leg-over moments in your broadcasting career. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jonathan Agnew. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.